0: Bible to James chapter 5. We're in verse 1 this evening. James chapter 5 verse 1. Let's stand together and pray because your mind can only take what your seat can endure. Amen? So everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy and Lord, as we celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas, Lord, we thank you that you're the God who loves us, who sent his only son for us, and may the gift of you, Jesus, be cherished in our hearts and understood in a greater way in our minds, and may we be moved to to serve others and be a blessing in your kingdom. So would you open our ears and our hearts tonight? Lord, would you help us to hear your voice through your word? In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. A little boy desperately wanted $100, so he began to pray about it and pray about it, and he prayed for one month's period of time and didn't receive a cent, so he decided to write God a letter. He sat down and put it, pen and paper, and put it in the mailbox. The Postal Service wasn't sure what to do with this letter that was addressed to the Lord, so they sent it to President Obama, so... President Obama got the letter, and he decided to send this little boy $5 in return. And, you know, this boy's going to be blessed with $5. And so he opens up this envelope, and sure enough, he sees the $5 and decides, I'm going to write a letter to the Lord and says, God, thank you so much for the $5. I noticed that for some reason you had to send your money through Washington, D.C., And those guys, those bums, they withheld $95. (laughs) There's a lot that's been said about money. One is this. Why is money called dough? Because we all need it. Why was the skunk arrested for counterfeiting? Because he gave out some bad sense. I like that one. That's good right there. This is probably my favorite, though. The nurse asked the question about the boy who swallowed a quarter and said, Well, how's he doing? And the doctor responded, No change yet. (laughs) Well, guess what? We're going to talk about money tonight. And in these verses, James is addressing a group of rich people that had given themselves over to luxury and to pleasure at the cost of others, at the cost of defrauding people and taking advantage of people and not paying their workers. No doubt there'd be some who are receiving this letter from James that were under this situation where they're out working in the fields and not getting paid the money that was deserved them. And it's really a a scathing call of conviction that James gives to them in these first few verses, but it's also for the church to be reminded to not live for money, the love of money, to be envious of money. And Paul would write and he would tell us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of of evil. If you seek and desire to be rich, you're going to fall into great destruction. And there's really two roads in this passage, two very different roads. The person that's made money their God and the person who's persevering, laboring faithfully for the second coming of Jesus Christ. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 5. James writes and says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. James says, you rich, you need to actually weep and you need to howl. You need to mourn because there is misery that is coming upon you. They're doing great financially. But they're in a horrible place spiritually. And as we read these verses, we're going to find out very quickly that James isn't writing to a believer. He's writing to a person that's been corrupted completely by money. And James is saying you need to stop and think about it. In this life of luxury, and this life of pleasure, you don't realize where you're headed for all of eternity. And so many people throughout the world today have s- taken the same road, the same track. And they said, money is everything. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to make as much money as I possibly can. It doesn't matter who I have to squash. It doesn't matter if I have to commit murder. It doesn't matter if I have to be unethical. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go after it. And they never stop to think about Well, where are you going to spend eternity, heaven or hell? And James puts it very clearly. You need to stop, and you need to mourn. You need to get right with the Lord and consider where your eternity is going to be. In verse 2, it says, Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've heaped up treasure in the last days." So what would their perspective of riches be? This wealth upon wealth and this luxury. They may go, man, I've got it good. Look at my bank accounts. Look at my gold. Look at my silver. Look at my fine garments. Look at all my bling bling. But then God looks at the riches and he says, well, your riches, they're corrupted. Your garments, they're moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver, it's corroded. There's nothing that you can do to keep your riches. That's the nature of these earthly treasures is ultimately they're going to corrode. Ultimately, a moth is going to destroy them. Master of money as a master is a terrible thing, isn't it? Because when you don't have it, you're worried and you're stressed out and you're desiring, how do I get more money? And then if for some reason you get more money, you're worried about how you can keep it. Isn't that so true? And so here these guys are in this place where they're serving money, but God says it's corroding around you. And then notice closely in verse 3, it says the corrosion will be a witness against you. It's going to be a testimony that these treasures could have been used for God's kingdom, like Jesus instructed us to lay up our treasures in heaven. But instead, they just heaped up treasures for themselves And it's going to be a witness against them. Their treasure will actually be part of their self-destruction. And then it says, it will eat your flesh like fire. That's some descriptive language, isn't it? I mean, you picture someone being burned to death. It's probably the worst way to go. It's like drowning and being burned alive. No thanks. I don't want either one of those, right? And James is using that image. And he's saying, your riches... It's going to burn your your flesh. And exactly what is it? It's watching this corrosion process take place. Maybe even worse than not having riches is losing your riches, right? And when someone has worked so hard and money is their God and they finally get it, what they aspire to, and then they lose it, man, it makes them mad and it makes them angry. And that's what James is saying. It's going to eat your flesh like fire, It's captivating the end of verse 3. It says, you've heaped up treasure in the last days. So here you are hoarding and storing more and more material things, but what are you storing it for? You're heaping it up in the last days. You're coming close to the return of Christ when all of this world's going to be burned up. So what good are your treasures in that moment? In 1976, on Easter in West Palm Beach, a lady by the name of Bertha Adams, she died. The cause of death was malnutrition. She was 50 pounds. Everybody around her believed her to be extremely poor. At times, she was even found begging. When they went into her home, the cops wrote that it said that it was the grossest environment that they'd ever seen in their, law, in their time in police. Man, it's all jumbled up. It's the turkey. The turkey is in my head. Gobble, gobble. So, It was bad. Let me just put it that way. And they went through her stuff in the house and they found two keys to two security boxes in the bank. And inside of those two boxes were some stocks as well as $600,000 in cash. Her total assets were over $1 million. She'd hoarded all of this money. It would have been good for her to use some of it, right? And to buy food and to get the things that she needed and get the clothes that that she needed. And these guys that are in this luxury and they're in this place of, of pleasure, they've just heaped up and they've stored up all of this material stuff ultimately for judgment. There's an interesting thing that is starting to happen and you're finding some extremely wealthy people that are finding the joy of giving, and not all of them are even believers. I don't know if you saw a recent 60 Minutes, and it had Warren Buffett on it, and also Bill Gates, but they started this philanthropy. You have to have a billion dollars to be able to join, and to join, you have to commit to give away 50% of your money. And Warren Buffett's committed to giving away 98% of everything that he owns. 98%. And then the Gates have committed to 95%, giving away 95% of what they own. And we don't necessarily have indication that all of these people that are in this group are believers, but what have they found? That they can't just heap it up to their destruction. Ultimately, that much money is not going to be good for their kids and grandkids. And that's what Warren Buffett says. You know, this isn't going to benefit my kids just to give them all this money. And so he's decided, I want to give it away. And and they're trying to find meaningful ways to, to give that money away and cause the money to have a legacy to live beyond their lives. But hasn't Jesus told us long before that it's more blessed to give than to receive? And Christ encouraging us to take something that's temporal and turn it into something that can be eternal. I'd like to read it to you out of Christ's own words in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's the important truth. Your heart follows treasure. So if you put your, your treasure into the work of God, into the kingdom of God, then your heart is going to be in the kingdom of God as well. It's the treasure principle. Verse 4, it says, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. And it's not Sabbath. It's it's a different word there. And the word sabbath, it means the Almighty, the Lord of hosts. So their cries go in to God's ear, the Almighty, the Lord of hosts. So how did these guys get so stinking rich and have so much money? Well, they didn't pay their workers. So you'd be out mowing in this guy's field, who's filthy, stinking rich, and he owes you $2 for your labor that day. And he decides, no, I'm not going to pay you. While well, he's having the Thanksgiving feast of a lifetime, right? He's got three turkeys and a prime rib and some ham and some hummus to dip his carrots in. And then all of his workers can't even buy a turkey for, the, for their family. They can't even get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And what does God say? He says, the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, they cry out. And it's a loud cry that goes into God's ear. And I wonder what that cry sounds like to the Lord this evening. When we think about some of these other countries, as Kent talks about missions and some of these laborers are are taken advantage of. Why? So that some businessmen can make even more money and even more money and even more money. And some people not even paid for the work that they've done. Slavery is not a dead issue. And when we think that maybe slavery has ended, there's some research to show that slavery is more than any other point in history. There's people that are not getting paid, but then there's people that are forced into slavery, that are sex slaves, domestic slaves. The list just goes on and on of the abuses of people. And that all goes up into God's ear. And we start to feel some compassion towards God. God. Think about all that he hears and those cries that come before him moment by moment. But here's the lesson. If you're an employer, is there anybody that's crying out against you? That says, you know what? They owed me money because I did work. And that yet you didn't pay them. But yet we're here on a Saturday night worshiping the Lord together. That's not right. It goes before the Lord. And we need to honor the Lord By paying people. You entered into an agreement with them, and they did work for you, you pay them. And so these guys were really the dirtiest type of businessmen that you could imagine, and it goes before the Lord of hosts, and the Lord will ultimately hold them accountable. In verse 5, you lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. They've got a soft and pampered life, just filled with pleasure, filled with luxury. And we know that God's a God of celebration. He gave many feasts throughout the Old Testament. It's not that things aren't to be enjoyed. It's that these guys have chosen pleasure and luxury through injustice, through murder, through destroying people's lives, and through fraud. And so what James tells them is he's saying, you fattened your heart. For the day of the slaughter, you've ripened yourself for God's judgment. You've made yourself fat for the judgment of God. In verse 6, you've, you've condemned, you've murdered the just, and he does not resist you. The just man that's been murdered by this man didn't resist. My mind goes to Ahab in the Old Testament. He's a king of Israel, and he was much like what's being described here. In fact, he saw a vineyard that he wanted and he desired, Naboth's vineyard. And Naboth wouldn't give it to the king. He said, this has been in my family. In Israel, if land has been given to you, it's been passed down through the families, I'm not going to give this to you even if you're the king. So what did, Nab- what did Ahab do? He went home and he cried like a toddler. You've seen a toddler throw a fit when they don't get what they want. And that's exactly what Ahab did. So here comes Jezebel, and she's like, oh, does the king need his blankie? Is he, did he not get the vineyard? And, and so she says, I'll work this out for you, and you can go back and read it for yourself in the Old Testament, and you'll find that then Jezebel, she set up a scheme to have Naboth killed so Ahab could take the vineyard. That's what we're talking about. These guys had no problem murdering in order to make more money. How much does that happen in the world today? Or murder, I'm not talking about in an allegorical sense or an illustration, but cold-blooded murder happens so that more people can make more money. And if it's not physical murder, the murder of someone's character, maybe you work in an environment like that where your character is getting murdered. You're getting run under the bus so that somebody else can get the promotion. Well, be of good cheer, there's this other road. That's, that's one road that people are on, James warns against, but this is the road that the believers to be on in verse seven through verse 12. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Therefore is linked to, in response to, dealing with these kind of people that have the love of money, what are we to do? We're to be patient, we're to endure, we're to persevere, we're to wait. What are, we, what are we waiting for until the coming of the Lord? When Christ is going to deal with all of these things, put yourself in the position of working in one of these fields and not getting paid, and you're the child of God. You're thinking, man, that guy's going to get it. You know, he needs to pay me what he owes me. God says, no, be patient because Christ is returning, the coming of the Lord. And that's what we're waiting for, and that's what we're being patient about. And please just highlight, if you're a Bible underliner, the coming of the Lord. Church, Jesus is coming. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, the disciples are gazing up because Jesus has just ascended to the throne. And the angel says this to the disciples, who also said, "'Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven?' The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Right after his ascension, the angel's saying, You know what? Guys, get busy because Jesus is going to come back the same way in which he ascended. In Zechariah 14, this describes the second coming of Jesus Christ. So I'd like to read this to you and use your imagination and picture Christ returning. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And the, And in that day, his feet will stand on Mount Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Did you get that? All the nations of the world are going to come and attack Jerusalem. That's what Zechariah 14 is telling us. Anti-Semitism is going to continue to grow until the coming of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus is going to say, that's enough bam, on Mount of Olives, bam, on Mount of Olives, and boom, the Mount of Olives splits and breaks. I'm excited about that, if you can't tell. (laughs) You just start to picture this in your mind, and then something amazing happens. There's this large valley, and half of the mountain shall move to the north, and half of it towards the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley. For the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, my God will come and all the saints with you. And it shall come to pass in that day, there will be no light. The lights will diminish and it shall be one day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time, it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day, it shall be. So no need for utilities, no utility bills. Christ is the light. The living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. And both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day, it shall be the Lord is one and his name is one. Did you catch that? It says, and the saints with him. I believe the rapture of the church is going to happen before the tribulation, which is a seven-year period. And then when Christ returns, the saints return with Christ. Saints are those who are in Christ. And when Christ returns, he's then going to rule and reign for a thousand years. Christ will be king. He's going to set everything right. So you have a boss that takes advantage of you. Maybe doesn't even pay you what you deserve as you've worked and has withheld wages from you, be patient. Christ is coming. There's over 300 references to the coming of Jesus Christ in the scripture. That's one in every 13 verses, if you were to put it into average. The Bible oozes out with the second coming of Jesus Christ. As you're reading the Bible, you have to understand it's this unfolding story with this big ending where Christ returns. Everything is leading up to this point. And for us as believers, this is what our perspective is to be on. But it's very easy for us to begin to put the second coming of Jesus Christ out of our minds because it feels so normal that things are always gonna continue the way they are now. But there's some good news, some really good news. Christ is gonna return. He is coming. So as we continue on in James, be patient, the coming of the Lord, here's an illustration. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. In Israel, there's rain in October. That's the early rain. Then the latter rain comes in January and in February. And the farmer plants and waits and waits patiently. And this is something that's a little bit removed from a lot of our daily lives. We don't do a lot of farming. It's starting to make a little bit of a comeback. Maybe you've got a garden in your backyard and have started growing some vegetables or or those kind of things. We enjoy doing some gardening at at our house, or I should say my wife enjoys doing some gardening. And I'm learning to enjoy enjoy gardening. I, I think I've got the brown thumb of death instead of the green thumb of life. But it's a process, isn't it? And we'll plant seeds, and we've got these covers that we'll do it early with some plastic over it, and it grows, and you weed, and you fertilize, and you wait, and you water, and you weed, and you fertilize, and then it's this amazing thing that happens. It actually works. God gives the increase, and boop, out comes a pepper, right? Or here comes a tomato, and here comes some kale, and oh, it tastes so good, and it tastes so delicious. And this gives us a great understanding of this patience where we're waiting for the coming of the Lord. It's not this kind of patience where we just don't do anything, where we just twiddle our thumbs like this. A farmer is working very hard in his patience, isn't he? He's got to prepare the soil. He's got to plant the seed. He's got to water. He's got to weed. And ultimately, the fruit comes. So while we're waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ, we're actively doing his work. We're actively engaging in knowing Christ and making him known. Verse eight, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Anytime the scripture tells us something twice, we're to pay attention. It's important. This is double patience. This is a double emphasis on patience. And to be patient is this to be long-spirited, to not lose heart, To persevere, it's long obedience in the right direction. Are you hearing me? This is not stuff that's cultural. Perseverance is not popular. You're not going to find it in your 2014 goals. I need to be more patient, I need to persevere in trial. But this is what God tells us to do be patient, wait for the coming of Christ, continue laboring in the things of God. And as we're patient, establish your heart. The word establish means to make stable, place firmly, set fast, fix. It's the opposite of being double-minded. Some have put it this way in a prayer. God, put iron in our hearts. Make our hearts strong. Establish our hearts. I've found that when things are difficult in my life, I find myself thinking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. I find in believers an anticipation for the second coming of Jesus Christ when things are difficult. But when things are going well, when we're at the height of human experience, we're not thinking near as much about the coming of Jesus Christ. And so our hearts are established not by the hope of things in this world, but by the return of Christ. Notice what it also says in verse 8, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James describes this some almost 2,000 years ago, 1,900 years ago, saying Christ could come at any moment. It's at hand. That's the mystery of Christ's return. It's imminent, meaning we don't know when it could be. It could happen tonight. It could happen before Christmas, before the new year, sometime next year. Nobody knows the day or the hour. What are the closing words in Scripture. How does the Bible end? In Revelation 22, verse 20 and 21, it says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. So as you read the Bible, if you get the message, you testify, and you say, Surely he's coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So how does the scripture end? By all of God's people saying, Jesus, come. I'm ready for you to come. I realize that your coming is at hand. So more than anything else, are we prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ? And are we preparing others for the coming of Jesus Christ? I think of it a lot like John the Baptist. John the Baptist prepared people for the first coming of Jesus Christ. We're to be preparing people for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Preparing our kids for the coming of Jesus Christ. Our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers, do you know Jesus? Are you prepared for his coming? In verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The word grumble, it means to complain strongly, to groan. I think grumble is translated really good in the English language. Grumble, 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 right? When someone's really upset at somebody else, what do they do? They just grumble. It's not very much fun to be around, is it? All that kind of grumbling. And what's the message here, verse 9? It's saying, hey, don't grumble against another believer because Jesus is standing right at the door and he may come back while you're grumpy Christian. Well, I'm grumpy Christian. I'm grumbling by all the Christians that I don't like. And then here comes Jesus and he's saying, hey, Why are you so upset? I died for them. I rose again for them. I paid for their sin. I I forgive them. He's at the door and he gets to do the judging. Remember last week we were encouraged through our study in James, we need to do the loving and let God do the judging. Everyone's gonna have to be accountable to God. Every believer is accountable to God. Their life will pass through judgment, not for salvation, but for reward. So let Christ do his job. He's standing at the door. In verse 10, another illustration of patience. The first was the farmer who works hard, persevering in patience, waiting for the crop. And now we have the prophets in verse 10. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. So you've got guys that are living in luxury and living at pleasure, While they're taking advantage of others, but that's not the prophets. The prophets decided a different road. Now, if you want a difficult life that's going to have huge eternal dividends, then speak in the name of Christ. Speak in the name of the Lord. It's going to be exciting, it's going to be worthwhile, but it's also going to be difficult. And the prophets understood that. And they spoke in the name of the Lord. And what happened? They had suffering. And also, they had to learn to persevere as they spoke the message. It doesn't matter who you speak it to. Your kids, your grandkids, your neighbors, your co-workers, a loss and dying world. If you speak the message of Christ in the authority of Christ, there's going to be suffering that comes. And this is an example for us. As this is the road we're going down, this is the road of Christ, and this was the road of the prophets. I think of Jeremiah. Jeremiah probably stands out in his suffering. As he spoke faithfully the message of God, we don't see one convert, one person turning in repentance. That's got to be discouraging. But he continued faithfully. He was put into prison. He was put into this miry, cessed pool, this pit that he was placed into. There was times that the discouragement was so bad for Jeremiah, that he says, God, I'm done speaking your word. I'm I'm done speaking in your name, but then he said the word of God burned within him, and he couldn't help but speak the word of Christ, and that's an example to us of suffering, and also an example to us of patience, this perseverance, this long obedience in the right direction. Can I just speak to your heart for just a moment? Two things. One, Is there anybody that just feels like giving up? Maybe you've chosen a course that you know that God's had you on and you find it to be very difficult. Hey, don't give up. Don't lose heart. Christ is gonna return. The fruit's gonna come. You keep going in that direction that God has for you. And the second is, let's be real about the times that we live in. If we're gonna be disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, there's more suffering to come in the days ahead for us. It's obvious. You look at culture, you look at everything that's happening, and it's not getting more friendly to Christians. Agreed? And if you speak in the name of Christ, the words of Christ, there will be suffering that comes. But it's worthwhile. It was worthwhile for the prophets. It was worthwhile for Jesus. It was worthwhile for the disciples. It's worthwhile for us. You take the two lives that are being presented in James, and which would you rather have? This guy that's got it really easy now with luxury and pleasure, but's headed towards hell at a rapid pace, or somebody who's committed to Christ and surrendered to Christ that's concerned about people knowing Christ. There's many modern day examples as well of those that have chosen a road to speak in the name of the Lord. One of them is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, fascinating man who lived in World War II in Germany. He was German. A believer in Christ was actually here in the United States and took the last boat leaving the United States to go back to Germany. And when the church was compromising, he stood up boldly and spoke the truth of Christ. And guess what? He got martyred. He got killed. Yet he stands out in church history as a man who chose the road of Christ and says, I'm going down this path. So there may be suffering if you speak in the name of Christ at work. There may be suffering as we go into December if you say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays, you know. You may go through it a little bit, but it's worth it. And We have to choose and decide which road we desire to to be on. And we look at verse 11. It says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. How do we count them blessed who endure? Because they were faithful to the mission of Christ. The smile of God rests upon them. In Romans 8, verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Some of the strongest testimonies of Christ have come in suffering. Remember Stephen, the first martyr in the book of Acts? Who was watching? Saul, who became Paul. The attention of the lost and dying world is gained when believers suffer for the message and suffer for the cause of Christ. We count them blessed who endured. Now, if I've lost you, we're just getting to the best part. I'm just getting started. So we'll really get to the heart of the message in verse 11 says, you have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Have you heard of the perseverance of Job? Does anybody like, Want the ministry of Job? or Is anybody like, I thought that was always Job. And when I looked in my table of contents, I was like, what's this book of the Bible called Job? His name was Job. An amazing man. He feared God and he shunned evil. He'd get up routinely to pray for his kids. He knew the times that they would be tempted. And so he would get up and make sacrifices for them during those seasons. He was also extremely wealthy. He had 7,000 sheep alone, 500 oxen, 500 cattle, was one of the richest men of of his time. Satan comes to the throne room of God, to the Father, and says, if I remove the blessing from Job's life, he'll curse you. God says, fine, take your best shot at Job, only you can't take his life. So we go to Job chapter 1, One of the most horrific days when it comes to human suffering, Job gets his messengers from his servants coming, four different messengers. The first three say you've lost all of your cattle. That's like every bank account, every job, every source of income, all gone in one moment. I know some of you have have been there. And Job's probably going, okay, this is a tough day. But by far the worst was the fourth messenger. He says, All of your children have died. They gathered together in a house to have a feast. A storm came. They're all dead. They're all gone. Job's in that place of absolute sorrow and brokenness. And what does he do? He says, the Lord gives and he takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Job was extremely rich, but he was unlike the guys that we read earlier this evening. He never allowed money to become his God, and he continued to worship even when all that was stripped away, even when his kids were taken from him. Satan's not satisfied. He goes once again to God and says, skin for skin, if I take his health, he's definitely going to curse you. God says, okay, you can take his health. So he had these boils all over his body, just to try to get relief from the boils, he would take pieces of pottery and he would scrape these boils and pus coming out everywhere, I'm sure, right? Gross. That was happy Thanksgiving to you guys from me. <laughs> our little Thanksgiving gift to you. Then his wife, you might just call her Mrs. Encouragement. Uh, she comes up and she says, Job, I, I understand what's going on here. Uh, why don't you just go ahead and curse God and die? This would be all over if you just renounce, renounce God. I'm sure at that moment, Job was probably resisting the thought, God, could you have please taken my wife and left the kids, you know? (laughs) Then here come his three friends, his three buddies. And they start off well. They sit down with Job and they weep and they don't say anything for extended a period of time. But then they begin to talk and talk. And talk. And you'll find when you go through suffering that even your closest of friends sometimes will try to be an expert on your suffering. And they mean well. They really want to find the answers and figure out what's wrong and put the pieces together. But these particular three friends couldn't be more wrong. They thought Job was in sin. They're living in this retribution time of the law. And if you do this, then you receive this from God. And so this was their view. If if you have bad things happen in your life, then it must be because of sin. And this dialogue just goes on and on forever in the book of Job. It's good to read because it reminds us less is more in time of trial. To say less is more in time of trial. And then at the end of the book, God says, it's time for me to speak. And he speaks powerfully through the whirlwind. And here in James, it says something very interesting. The perseverance of Job and seeing the end intended by the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Job persevered through all of this. And if you read it closely, it's not the absence of emotion or human experience or disappointment. Job is very honest with God, even to the point at times where he's complaining wishing that he was never born, but what did he not do? He never renounced God. He never denied the Lord. So don't get this idea that persevering in trial is just going to be like, oh, holy night, you know? Like, you're not moved by it or it doesn't bother you or everybody asks you how you're doing. You're like, praise the Lord. Doing great. Just love the fact that all my kids are dead. That's so nice, you know? no this is real life this is a human experience it hurt job really really bad and he expresses that but he never renounced the lord and god says job persevered and maybe that's where you're at tonight you're at the very end you're confused at times you're complaining you're you're discouraged but you haven't given up on the lord you haven't renounced the lord good for you you're persevering What I want us to all see before we go tonight is what it says here, the intended end by the Lord. God had a good future for Job and at the end of the book, we see that Job regained all of his losses. Ten more children were granted to him. He saw his kids and his grandkids for four generations and the greatest thing that Job received was a deep understanding of who God was. He had a greater knowledge of God through the suffering that he went through and God had a good plan for Job. Now don't misunderstand me and please don't misunderstand the scriptures. God is not saying that there's a fairy tale ending here in this life for every believer. That's what happened with Job. God may do that in our lives or he may not, but we do know there is a glorious end in heaven. Amen? Eternal life that God has prepared for us. And what establishes our hearts is not going, well, I know in this life I'm going to regain all of my losses, but knowing that Christ is going to return, that Christ is coming back, that we have eternity with the Lord. And seeing God's character and nature, that the Lord is very compassionate, not just a little bit compassionate, but very compassionate And merciful at the very core of our being, going, I can persevere in this long road of obedience, of this life of difficulty, because I know God is good and I know it's worth it. I know this is the best place for me to be, and I know that I know that I know that God has a future and a hope for me, that the best is truly yet to come. No matter what the circumstances are, the situation is, and the difficulties. So as we've seen and we've looked at tonight is which road are you on? There's this road of luxury and this road of pleasure of people that are taking advantage of others and even murdering others, but then there's the path of a believer who's patient, who's got an established heart that knows that Jesus is coming, that knows that God has a glorious end planned for us. A lot of trials between here and eternity, But eternity is sure. Amen? So let's stand and pray and